Now as we come to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me, Father in heaven. Um, Pray that you would help us now as we come to the scripture. uh, We confess our complete dependence upon you to teach us and to help us understand and believe and to do. And so, Father, I pray now that you would uh, work that in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Malachi, please. Chapter 3 and verse 6. I want to read verses 6 through 12. Malachi chapter 3, please. Hear the word of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. For the last couple of months, we've been working our way through this Prophetic book, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, to 5th century B.C., precedes the coming of Jesus then. By that time, it'd be 400 years or so before Jesus comes as announced and most recent to him announced by uh, the Elijah that is to come, that is to John the Baptist. But, 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 but now, uh, Malachi is, is speaking to this group of people. You remember they've been returned from exile back in Jerusalem, temple rebuilt, uh, walls around it secured, but, but still a very small group of people. Uh, they still haven't met what they think is their potential and seen the glory of the Lord as they ought. And, 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 and they're living in a, in a state of decline really spiritually. So the prophet comes to them and God speaks to them uh, through him uh, and does it in this series of this, this, this way of what we call disputations. These disputes, there's six of them. This is the fifth. The fifth of them. And, they, and these are very predictable as we've been reading through. They, they go like this. God makes a statement. They respond. They're responsible, shaky. And then God comes and, and clears all that up. He, he explains it uh, to what he meant. And, and this one is like that. A little bit more banter, but, but, uh, but quite, uh, quite, quite like that. It, but it begins this particular disputation with, with God saying something about himself that, he's, that he doesn't change, that is by way of his character and purpose, God never changes. And he says to these people, that's to your advantage, because since I don't change, you haven't been consumed. Uh, you haven't been destroyed. And by that, he means this. He said, I, I made a covenant with your great-grandfather, You're the children of Jacob, your great-grandfather Abraham. And in that covenant, I promised, God says, that you would would be numerous. It'd be many of you, descendants like the the, the stars in the sky and the sands and the seashore. And and, and, and there'd be many of you. And so you can't be destroyed because I've made that promise that you'll continue. Not only that, from your seeds, 
All the nations of the world will be blessed. And so, so you're important. And I've chosen you to be mine. He says, I've loved you. And uh, in chapter 1, he said, I've loved you. And, 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 and he says, you're mine. Therefore, I haven't destroyed you. Therefore, even though you've sinned against me throughout all of history, you and your forefathers, everybody, but, but still notice you're still here. And, 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 and the reason you're still here is because I don't change. God says, because I'm faithful to my, my promises. And then he begins with this statement. And he says, even though you've rebelled against me, return to me and I'll return to you. That's always the promise of God for his people. Return to me and I'll return to you. Stop being rebellious and come back. I'll be here. Rather like the prodigal, you remember in the story that Jesus told, he came to a census. And what did he say? He said, oh, I will arise and I will go to my father. That's returning. And you know, his father was there. And in the same way, God says, return to me. And I'll return to you. I'll be here. So return to me. But that begins this sort of dispute with them. Because notice what they say. How shall we return? Now, in that, as with all of these questions that they bring back to God, there's, there's a little bit of an edge here. It's like, why should we have to return? We haven't gone anywhere, really. Have we really gone anywhere? I mean, what's the deal? Why should we return to you? How can we do that? And then God speaks up and he says, well, a man, will, will man rob God, yet you're robbing me. And then they say, but I'll be robbed you. That is to say, they're saying, we really haven't robbed you. What's that really mean? And so God responds that they've robbed him in their tithes and contributions. Uh, they've robbed him. And then he gives them this a command ultimately, verse 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in, there may be food in my, in my house. So what I want to do with this is what we've been doing with every dispute that's come between God and these people and ask two questions. One, what's it mean to them? Two, what's it mean to us? All right, two very simple questions. Eh, not so simple, but two questions at least. How, how did they understand this? What did it really mean in their context for their time? Then what's it mean for us in in in, in our time. Well, well, God says there's this full tithe that you need to bring into the storehouse. Now, tithe, as we know, the word simply means a tenth. So it's a tenth of something, 10%, we would say, but a tenth of something. That's what a tithe is. When you see the word tithe, it means tenth. It doesn't mean 2% or 11%. It means a tenth. That's what it means. And so, so this tenth, you see, uh, belonged, belonged to God. And in Leviticus... In chapter 27, the first time this notion of tithe is really raised in the Mosaic time, in the law of Moses, if you will. In Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, we read, Every tithe, or tenth, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Right? In fact, in Deuteronomy now Moses writes that once the tithe is given, once the tithe is paid, then the sacred portion has been removed from your house. In other words, that tenth belonged uh, to God. So if they didn't pay it, if they didn't give it, then they had in their possessions, they were holding their possession, that which really belonged to God, not to them. So God says, since... The sacred portion is still in your house. Since you haven't brought the full tithes into the storehouse, since you haven't given this, then you're taking from what is mine. That's mine. It's holy to 
me uh, that tenth. It belonged to God. Now, why was this mandatory in Israel? Why was this tithe mandatory? Well, you can say because God said so. But why? Why did he, why did he say so? Why this particular uh, amount, if you will, or percentage? Well, first, it shouldn't surprise us at all that there is something to be given by the people to God. It shouldn't surprise us at all. In the context of a relationship that's called covenant, in that relationship, especially in the kind of covenant relationship between God and people, between king and subjects, there is always a tribute paid. And and the reason that there's a tribute paid, for instance, in ancient covenants, if a king would make covenant with people, a suzerain with vassals, if you will, but a king with subjects, well, what we'd find is always that those subjects would pay tribute. Why? Because the tribute payment was in recognition of the fact that it was the king who owned everything. Everything really belonged to the king. And so in recognition of that, the people would say, yes, the land that we're farming, the land that we're using isn't really ours, it's really yours. And so what we want to do is is give this to you, is is pay this to you. It was quite common. It was expected in various amounts, not always a tenth. But but it's interesting that there was a pre... I know this is really heady for this hour of the morning. But but really, it's it's like midday. I've been up since four. Now, um... Yeah, before that, Karen said, I know, Saturday nights are not a good night for sleeping for me. But anyway, um, uh, or for some of you because you catch up here. But, the, uh, but, but anyway, there was a time, there was a, a pre-Mosaic law tithe. In fact, it took place in Genesis, Genesis chapter 14. Abraham had won a war, great spoils. And so he paid a tenth of that to this sort of man out of the blue in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth. Now, this name Melchizedek is interesting. Uh, Melchi means king. Every Tigers fan knows that. Detroit Tigers fan knows that. Uh, It's rather Trinitarian as well with the triple crown. But Melchi means king. Uh, Zadek, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. In fact, he was called the king of Salem, which would become Jerusalem. And, and so the king of righteousness. So, so here, Abraham pays a tenth to this king. Common, this really tenth belongs to you. And, and this Melchizedek would be a shadow, foreshadowing really, of the priesthood and the kingship of Jesus. Hebrews speaks of Jesus as this Melchizedek. It's interesting too that Jacob, their father, as it's put here, paid a tithe as well. He was in the presence of God. He woke up and he realized he's been in the presence of God. Therefore, he promised a tenth of everything to God. So, so there's something to this tenth thing. There's something, this paying tribute, God, everything belongs to you. And, and, it, and, and really, if it's in my possession, then I must give it. But there's something you see that God used this tenth for, and that he used it to ensure first that worship would take place amongst his people. Remember, 12 tribes, 12 sons, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes, as it boiled down. One of those tribes was taken out of the other 12, the Levites, and it was their job to make sure that worship happened among the people of God. 
They were given discretion, if you will, and responsibility for temple. They were given responsibility for all that took in there. And one family out of the Levites, the family of Aaron, became the priests. And it was the priest's job, therefore, then to make sacrifice and all of that and to teach and instruct the people. So basically, 12 tribes, you have one that doesn't have any land. They're completely dependent, these Levites, on on their brothers to supply their needs. Because they don't farm, they don't have any land. And so he says, all right, the other 11 of you, one of them was small, Benjamin, the other 11 of you, Trabs, take a tenth and bring it to the storehouse of the temple to be stored up so that the Levites uh, can live, so that ministry can happen, so that the worship of God can take place in Israel. It's that important. And so he says, make sure you do that. And then to the Levites, he said, now Levites, as a family, take a tenth of what you're given and give that to the priest so that they'll have enough. And not only that, that at least every third year a tithe was given so that uh, would not simply just go to Levites who were dependent upon their brothers and sisters, but also given uh, for the sojourners, for the fatherless, that is the orphans, And the widows, that is those in the culture who had no other means of support, no family, no other means of support. And so basically the tithe was given in Israel for those who had no other means of support, the Levites who had no land and those who were poor. And so it was necessary, you see, to fund, to supply all of that. And the promise of God was do this and there'll be no need. Do this and there'll be no need. And so that's what they Uh, were to do, but they didn't. And you can, if you read in the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that a couple of verses that says that because they weren't paying their tithes, the Levites had to go work land in order to live. And what that meant was then the ministry would be diminished. They didn't, they didn't do it. You see, this lack of giving, paying their tithes was symptomatic of deeper issues. It was symptomatic of deeper issues, deeper issues like Did they really believe that everything belonged to God? Did they really believe that? Did they really believe that all was His? Did they really value worship? Were they really a people that desired to give praise to God for who He was as King and owner of all and provider that all it is? Uh, Did they really want to give thanks to God who had rescued them and who makes atonement for their sins so that they can live in His presence and that thus He would be their protector and provider? Did they really want to worship God in the sense of of having this, this sort of humble obedience, joyful submission to Him? Did they really... They're really their hearts. They really value being in covenant with God and with each other and all the implications of that. You see, part of the, the tithe that was given was, was, was given in such a way that would be celebration. That is, when you'd bring your tithe, you'd take part of that and, and sit with the priests and others and eat and have a, have a great celebration meal at various feasts and other times so that you could say, look at this. God has called us together with him and with each other. We're a people. We're the very people of God. And we like that. We enjoy that. But if they're not doing this tithing, if they're not giving, then that isn't happening. And so you have to ask the question, did they really care about that? Did they really care about each other? Did they really care about the sojourner among them? Did they really care about the fatherless, the orphans among them? Did they really care about the widows, that is, those who had no other means of support other than this giving? Did they really care when these people went without? 
because they didn't give it. See, it was symptomatic of all of that. It was symptomatic of being faithless to the covenant of God, not caring for him, not caring for each other. And so thus, they didn't give. So, so God gives them this, this, this real challenge, really, this, this command. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, uh, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a very unique situation where God says, put me to the test. Normally, he says, you've put me to the test, and that's sin. He says, don't test me. That is, you should trust me. But on this occasion, he says, no, put me to the test. Test me in this. There, there was another occasion when, when, when God asked someone to put him to the test. It was this, this uh, King Ahaz in ancient Israel, Isaiah chapter 7. And he, he said, uh, ask me for a sign. I'll give you a sign. And the king proudly said, no, 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 I can't ask him for a sign. <laughs> he got nailed because he didn't ask for a sign. God says, I want to give you a sign. I want to show you something here. When I say I want to show you something, do it so I can show it to you because it's to my glory to show it to you. So he said, listen, do this. Do this. And I'll show you something. He says, you don't even know it, but you're under a curse. You see, your crops aren't producing nearly what they ought to produce. And so you're saying, well, since our crops aren't so good, since we're in a time of recession, then we need to give less. What you don't understand is that you're in a recession because you're giving less. <laughs> That's the curse upon you. He says, so do this, and here's what I'll do. I'll make it rain. The heavens will open up. And all those little critters that are eating all your, all your crops, uh, I'll stop that. I'll kill them all. I'll restrain them. I'll keep them. And you'll see there'll be no need among you. Because the reason for this tithe is so that the Levites who have no other means of support can live. And in their living, they can minister the word and the sacraments. And not only that, but the poor among you will have all that they need. If they would do it. Then he says, all the nations of the world will look at you and say, wow, what a great God they have. So you see, that's what it meant for them. They needed to return to God. Now, what does this mean to us? There are two questions that always pop up in a passage with this passage in particular. The passage is like it. The first question is this. Is it a requirement for believers in Jesus and the church to give a tenth of their income uh, to the church? Is, is that a requirement? Is that a command? Must we do that? Second question and it's corollary, Go like, goes like this. Um, if it is a requirement and we don't do it, does that mean we're robbing God? The related question is, if it is a requirement and we do do it, does that mean we'll be blessed? Now, my answer to that is, I'm not sure, but I think so. Yes and yes. Now, how do I get there? All right. Uh, let's unpack all of that just a bit. The reason those questions are asked, legitimate questions, the reason the question is asked is because there's, there's nothing in the New Testament that gives us a 10% requirement. There's, there's no command in the New Testament repeated from the old that says we must, as believers in Christ, give a tenth. That, so that's why the question is asked generally. Sometimes it's asked by people who don't want to do that, and so they ask, and they say, I don't really have to do that, do I? It's like the old uh, story about W.C. Fields. Most of you are too young probably for him. 
comedic actor some time ago. Who's known for his drinking and partying and a man walked into a hotel room early in the morning when he was recovering and had a huge hangover, W.C. Fields did, and he was thumbing through the Bible. And the man says, what are you looking for? And uh, Fields looked up and said, loopholes. <laughs> and sometimes that's what we're doing when we come. We're looking for loopholes. We went, is this really? But legitimate question really isn't asked. So we, we really need to ask that, that question. Is it, is it really... Is it really required? Is it really necessary um, for us since there's no direct command for us? And we realize, too, that there's much in the Mosaic Law uh, that, uh, uh, that, that isn't applicable to us. We'll talk about that in a minute. It isn't applicable to us. But, but there is a tie in the Mosaic Law between giving and blessing, material blessing. And the question is, especially in light of the error, if not heresy, of this prosperity gospel, uh, in light of that, um, really, should we tie anything between our giving and being blessed materially or otherwise by God? So legitimate, legitimate questions. Let's take a look at it like this first. Everything that's in the New Testament about giving is consistent with what's in the Old Testament about giving. I could say that the other way. Everything that's in the Old Testament about giving is consistent with what's in the New Testament about giving. You see, as we come to the New Testament, first of all, we realize that just as in the Old, there's a recognition of the fact that God owns everything. It isn't that he ceased to own everything, ceased to own the land, ceased to own the means of production, ceased to own us. Uh, once we get to the New Testament, there's no change. He still owns everything, and that's still very true. And it's also true that in the New Testament, as in the Old, giving was expected. It would be unthinkable. Uh, to be a believer in Jesus, to be church, without thinking of giving. Jesus spoke of giving. Jesus made an outlandish, really, statement about giving. We find it in Luke, in chapter 6, many statements of Jesus like this. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Verse 38. Uh, Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus said, if you have two tunics, then you have one too many. So you need to give one to someone else. And so he was generous. He saw hungry people. He fed them. So people who needed help, he gave it. The very nature, the very compassion of of Jesus. It was the gut instinct of the early church uh, after the day of Pentecost. There you can only imagine... All these people had come in from, from out of town for this feast. And uh, we realized that 3,000 came to faith on that day of Pentecost. Uh, most of them probably out of towners. Most of them probably only brought with them enough to get through the feast and home. And now they find themselves completely transformed. Whole life turned upside down. Here they are in Jerusalem. Now believers in Jesus and out of money. Right? And so what did they do? They all got together and the people, the locals and others who had, what did they do? Well, they sold in order to give because they realized, oh, we're in this now together. There's something about this. Just like the tithe was to be used in such a way in the old covenant to make sure that those who had no other means of support could be cared for. Well, the same thing here in the new covenant as well. It's just the gut instincts of Christians. We gather together to take care of one another, to take care of one another's, one another's needs. That's 
Uh, that's an important, that's a necessary thing. Not only that, it's, it's, it, we're to give for the ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes about the fact that those who do ministry are, are worthy of support. Well, he said of himself, I'm not taking that from you, church in Corinth. I'm working, tent making and other things. But, 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 but really, the other apostles, they're, they're getting paid. And that's a good thing. That's a right thing. That's a right thing to do. And so important there. So for the sake of the ministry and certainly for, for those in need. You know, I, I read from, from uh, um, Second Corinthians this morning uh, for a purpose. Uh, as you know, when I... When I read those passages throughout the course of our worship service, there's always a tie-in, there's a front-end loading, you're thinking, so that when we come to the text I'm preaching, that you'll be thematically with me, as with our songs and all of that. But in 2 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9, this, this passage that concerns giving, it was about grace. In the Old Covenant, it was about grace as well. There's nothing legalistic about the Old Testament. You think, oh, that's legalism. No, it isn't. To be legalist in the Old Testament, to be a legalist means that you think by what you're doing, you're earning your salvation. It was never how an Israelite was to think of himself or herself. They were to think of themselves as people who'd been redeemed by God, thus to obey him, not to obey him so that they could be redeemed by God. He starts out his message to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I did all of this. I redeemed you. Now you're mine. So... Don't have any other gods before you. He didn't have no other gods before him so that he would do something. He did something so that they would trust him and follow him. It's grace all throughout. And so they received grace, it says, of this church in Macedonia, this poor church. And um, in the midst of their severe affliction, still they had joy. You see, in the old covenant, it wasn't a mechanical thing. They were to give always with joy. Read the Psalms, all filled with joy. Even read the Pentateuch, it's filled with joy. And Moses tells him about giving. He says, oh, it is well up in your heart to give. It's a good thing to be, give out of joy. It was sacrificial. Their giving was sacrificial. Uh, they said that they gave beyond their means. It, it cost them something to give. It was sacrificial. And it was worship. The New Testament's worship and the Old Testament's worship. They gave themselves first to the Lord and, and then by the will of God to us. It was, it was out of the worship of God that they gave. And the end result was, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, and it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. You see, everyone is to be, there's to be a sufficiency here. In chapter 9, he he even says it's to be cheerful, it's to be joyful. But he ties together, the apostle does, this relationship between giving and receiving. You mustn't think that's a sub-Christian thing. Notice how he puts it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his own heart, not reluctant or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. But notice this, he says, and God is able to make all grace abound you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may, be, uh, uh, abound, you may abound in every good work. He says, don't think that your giving is going to mean that you'll lack. 
God will supply. He'll help you. So that you have everything you need in every circumstance, in every situation, to do that for which he calls you. And all of this is on the basis of the inexpressible gift that we have, verse 15, from God who is Jesus. All of that. Same thing. Old Testament, New Testament. Same attitude, same purpose, same heart for all of this. So then the question is, well, if if the Bible doesn't, the New Testament doesn't give us a percentage, a tenth, what do we do with that? Do we do anything with that? Well, since this subject of giving is so personal, let me be personal. Let me just share with you how I understand this and how I practice it. Now, my practice is not normative for the church unless I'm following the scripture. And thus, I'll leave that to you to see if my reasoning is biblical and to see if I'm following the scripture in this. But I'm just going to be very... But Now, you may say, well, you have a vested interest in people giving a tenth of their uh, income to the church. And, and I'll tell you, I really don't. Because I don't, at one level, I shouldn't say this. Turn the tape off, Jeff, for 30 seconds. No, no, no. I don't care how much you give. I don't know how much you give. <laughs> I have no idea. All those books are sealed to me. Uh, so I have no idea how much people give and all of that. And, uh, and so, and what I'm about to tell you is everything that I developed in my thinking and practice before I entered the ministry. So I didn't, I, I didn't get paid for being good until I was uh, 34. So that's when I was ordained. And so I had a life before then. So everything I'm about to tell you is, is what we practiced and did before then. So I, this is no ulterior motives, none of that. It's just what I think is, is best and, uh, and really true. And it goes like this. We give a tenth of our income to the church. And then, as we're able, we give more. The more that we give ebbs and flows. And the more that we give sometimes comes back to the church for special things like building funds and all of that. And, 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 uh, and uh, others go to other ministries uh, that we support or, or ministries that help the poor and so forth. Things that, that we're moved to, to give to that just sort of capture us. And we say, yes, we can't not give to that. that. That's how we've practiced this. We even did this, Karen and I, when I was in seminary. And I don't share very often about our seminary experience because it's not normative either. But... You know that for some reason, uh, God gave us a gift of faith that we went off to a seminary when I was 31 and we had two little kids at the time and um, decided that it would be best uh, for me not to work during that time so I could get finished with school quickly. And since we had two little kids for Karen not to work and since we didn't have any money, uh, we had one of two options available to us. One was to solicit money from people to give to us uh, and the other was to pray. We decided not to solicit money from people uh, and just to pray. So we did. We prayed for those years. As we, we still pray. Uh, but uh, uh, prayed that God would meet our needs and give us support during that time without asking anyone for it or talking about it. And that happened. So those three years, uh, we didn't work and, and, and money came from anonymous sources. I have no idea where it came from. It came through a particular church that wanted to set itself up to 
Somebody said, I didn't do that. Anyway, this money came. So I don't know who gave it, by and large. But we decided even at that time to tithe off of that and to give as much of that away as we possibly could. And it wasn't because we were bargaining with God saying, okay, God, if we do this, then I'll know you'll keep doing that. But I think there's some truth to that. But because we didn't want to lose our spirit of generosity and there were other people in need as well and, and God owned everything, even the money that we were given. And so we decided that it would be best to give a tenth of that and sometimes with a tenth of a lot and sometimes with a tenth of a little and sometimes we were praying that other people would tithe to us uh, because it was getting low at various times. But we had no need for those years. So we continued on through there. So all of this just comes, comes out of that. So I'm just being gut level honest. You know I don't usually do this. You know I don't usually bear open, you know, my particular practices and these things. But, but uh, this is a personal thing I know to you. So I'll be personal. That's what we do. And the reason that we do this 10th thing as a minimum, as a bottom line, is because I don't trust my own thinking and my own calculations. In other words, some people might say, hey, I'm just going to ask Jesus and I'm going to work it out with him. And I go, that's great. Usually when I do stuff like that, either I hear nothing or something says, read the Bible. And so when I read the Bible, I read all the New Testament stuff on joy and cheerfulness and sacrificial and all that. And, And I have to be honest with you, I have no idea really in my own life what sacrificial means as an American. I just don't know what that means. And I don't trust myself. You know, frankly, sacrificial means to give a buck sometimes because I just, I'd just rather keep it. And so I don't trust myself in determining how much is sacrificial. And so I say, all right, the last time God put a number on this, it was a tenth. And so I'll go with that. And I'll go with that as the minimum for us. Tim Keller writes of his experience. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, PCA guy, Presbyterian guy. Uh, some notoriety in these days in a book that's interesting you should read called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, puts it like this. He says, there have been times when people have come to me as their pastor and ask about tithing, giving away a tenth of their annual income. They notice that in the Old Testament, there are many clear commands that believers, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, there are many clear commands that believers should give away 10%. But in the New Testament specific, quantitative requirements for giving are less prominent. They often ask me, you don't think that now in the New Testament, Believers are absolutely required to give away 10%, do you? He says, I shake my head no, and they give a sigh of relief. But then I quickly add, I'll tell you why you don't see the tithing requirement laid out clearly in the New Testament. Think, have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than, uh, than the Old Testament believers or less? Usually, he says, there's an uncomfortable silence. Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us? Or did he give it all? He says, tithing is a minimum standard for Christian believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. In other words, he said, listen, if it was 10% for them, why should we think it would be any less for us? Especially when the us 
as Americans. I mean, really. Do we really think we have it materially uh, worse off than they did? I mean, really? My car's air conditioner works so much better than the air conditioner on their camels. Right? And really, how many pairs of shoes? And so, really, 10%. And I think about that and I say, all right, that's where my joy should start. Not less than that. Why should I trust myself? Why should I say, I'll give what makes me happy? Really? I'll give what's accommodating. Really? No, let's start here. And then as God blesses, let's sacrifice. Let's work. And you say, well, is there ever a time that a believer is in such a situation that they can't really tithe? My answer is, I suppose so. I suppose so. Check out the tithe police. Send them out and say, well, what are you giving on that? I suppose so. I could see times in my own life, I suppose, when that would be the case. But it shouldn't be your whole life. Probably, for most of us. And you think, wow, this is a difficult thing to start. If you're at the, you know, the average Christian 2 to 3% range, and you go, yeah, it is a difficult thing to start. That's why, start with your kids. My dad was wise. He paid me as an allowance in dimes. A, because he didn't think I was too bright and could do the math, probably. But... Uh, it was just easy. And he read the passage out of Leviticus, where they, Leviticus 27 says, all right, what you do is you count off your sheep. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 11, 20. And so every 10th one you give to the Lord. And so that was easy with my dimes. Now he was kind. I didn't have to give the first one. I give the first one now. But, but then it was, it was to take the 10th. So, you know, I might have 19, but it's that 20th, right? So begin when you're young. And it's amazing. Start when you're young that it just becomes a habit, a pattern of life. Then the catch is to not make it mechanical. Then the catch is to not just be so accustomed to it. It's just like the mortgage payment or the electric bill or anything else. That, and, and, and you can go ahead and pay online and automatic this and automatic that. Um, I know that's easier. I'm just not sure it's better. I'm just not sure there isn't something really good about bringing it here and stick it in a box. Because then you notice it. And then you have to think, oh, yes. This brings me joy. And to think about it. Think about the joy that it brings. This, this passage in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, I, I read often uh, for the sake of my own soul. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You see, that, that's the tie. Now, now, frankly, I do believe in my own life that there's a relationship between my faithful stewardship and my material well-being. You know I'm not a health and welfare. <laughs> But I believe that God is just and that he's gracious and he's kind. That doesn't mean 
will have a superabundance or be wealthy or hundredfold this and that, all that sort of thing. No, no, no. I just, I just trust him that as we're being faithful in these areas, he's faithful as well. I, I, I trust that. And, 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 and my conscience then, you see, can be clear as well when I pray. When I pray, God, help me with this financially. Help me with that financially. Bring this, bring that. My, my conscience is clear. It's not because I, I haven't been giving. I don't use that. I don't say, God, I gave this much, therefore you owe me. But say, God, I've been, you know. My conscience is clear. I can actually ask him about these things because my conscience is clear. And, and, and so he says, you, you'll have it for righteousness. He said, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. What, a, what an expression. He said, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. How much more like Jesus could anyone be than that? Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In other words, he's saying, as you do this, as you give and it's given, and people are helped, then people are giving thanks to God. We buy Sunday school curriculum and, and the kids read that and they color it and they take it home and, and they're laughing and smiling about that. God's saying, you're welcome. That's their way of saying thanks, you see. And as we grow in our faith, because of the, being in the midst of this, and as people who haven't materially are given, they give thanks and God says, you're welcome. You see, And we have a part of that by way of giving. You see, when you drop money in the box or whatever you do with it, um, you should be smiling going, man, people are going to hear about Jesus. <laughs> Kids are going to be helped with this. Crayons for VBS. The, the Schaefers are going to go to Kenya. Um, that uh, there are needs within our own congregation of those who don't have any other way of support that we support, we give money to whether they're widows or sojourners or orphans or however you define them, people in need, they come to us in our church and we give because we have it, because we can. They give thanks to God. They don't give thanks to us. We get thank you notes and all that sort of thing. But, but, but they give thanks to God, which is really what we're after. By their approval of this service, they'll glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others while they long for you and pray for you because of their surpassing grace upon you. They'll look and they'll say, that's, 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 that's the grace of God in someone's life. That's why. That's why we do what we do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for all that you give to us. You own it all. I give you thanks that you don't leave us, me, alone to decide for myself. But rather you guide us. That your word not only convicts us of sin, what we're not doing, but it also guides us into what we ought to do. And so... I pray for me and for us who come to grips with this whole giving thing. Thank you for the generosity of people in our church that we haven't known need. So I pray, Father, that 
we would see your faithfulness in this. That we would have as a company of people no need. But the people would look at that and say, their God is good. And that we would be able to give in such a way that people would turn and give thanks to you and worship you. Father, we do pray for those among us in, in need. God, we pray for our dear brother Dale Rubison as he struggles with cancer. Bless him, God. Thank you for his faith in you. Heal him, we pray. We pray for Roger Hack as he thinks of this heart surgery coming. We pray for April Lamb as she carries this baby that you would give her strength and health. We give you thanks for your kindness to us, God. We pray for those who claim the name of Christ who find themselves on this day persecuted because of that. We pray that they would know the joy of being treated like Jesus. And yet that you would, they would know the joy of protection as well. Dear Father, be with us, I pray that we would find our great joy in worship 24-7, that we would be faithful to this covenant that you've made with us through Jesus to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love tangibly our neighbor as ourself and to love as you've loved us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Remind you, there'll be elders available to pray down front in the sanctuary area after the service. It'll also remind you of our Sunday school classes uh, coming up. Please receive this now as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing.